0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the August issue of the Juno Report. The Juno Report is a service of Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a proud affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. I'm Nolan Crabb. It's my privilege to host this program. And the Juno Report can be heard every first Friday of the month at 8 p.m. on AECB Radio. After that, it becomes a podcast, which you may download using any podcast receiver of your choice. For the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at the topic of Why Does Your Dog Work For You? What Motivates Your Dog? We're drawing heavily on remarks given during the July 2017 GDUI convention in Sparks, Nevada. The speaker is Del Rodman, a field representative for Guiding Eyes for the Blind. Rodman has nearly four decades of experience in working with guide dog teams, And he indicated during his remarks that he had completed more than 2,500 home interviews. You may visit www.guidedogusersinc.com. and under the convention archives, download the full unabridged copy of this recording. I'll be doing some editing, of course, in an attempt to provide you with the information within the time frame that we have here. But we will stretch this out over a couple of months because it's a topic of extreme importance. And so perhaps it's best to let Del Rodman explain to you what he's going to be talking about.
1: Today I'll be talking about simple training principles and address three common reasons a guide dog handler will reach out for assistance. And unfortunately, we do have to talk a little bit about science, and I don't want anyone to go to sleep on me. But when we're training a dog and we're working with a dog, we really need to understand the theory behind it. And so I've tried to break it down very clearly, because I have to break it down clearly, because if it gets complicated... I'm not going to understand it, and I'm not going to be able to explain it to you. I'm a very literal thinker. Um, I like to stay in the box. I like white and black. I don't like gray. I think gray is for someone who wants to accommodate everyone and not make a decision. So in working with your dog, I think the first thing you need to remember is that your dog only spent an average of five to six months during training, and for some programs in this country, a lot less in formal training before working with you for an additional two to four weeks. I really think that qualifies your dog as being a rookie. And I think you may not like that terminology, but they are a rookie. They only spend a certain amount of time in training. Yeah, I know we have great foster families, great puppy walkers, who raise them in a home and work diligently to ensure the dog was socialized and had appropriate behaviors. What I'm hoping is is that during your initial training, when you began to learn to work with your dog, that you thought about focusing on your dog's personality. Yeah, I know during training you had to learn about all the mechanics. You had to learn how to make a right turn, left turn. You had to do a street crossing. You had to learn to get on a bus, public transportation. You had to do all of that. But really the key component is your dog's personality you need to have learned and hopefully are still learning what motivates your dog. Is it food? Is it toy? Is it human touch? Which is really never to be denied. And equally important, you need to know what interests or distracts your dogs. Is it a dog? Is it a cat? Is it a bird? Is it people? Maybe it's that love of the all-consuming nose. It's then once you begin to arrive home and I'm sure people here can uh, validate this, that you begin to get an inkling of your dog's house manners. Again, personality. I would say you've been truly blessed if that rookie of yours is great in all areas, only requiring the initial practice, practice, practice on your part with little problem solving. However, and I know people in here are going to disagree with this, there are no perfect dogs even if you think you have the perfect dog. Your dog may, just may, have a behavior or two that needs changing or improved upon. I have no shortcuts to offer you today. If you want a shortcut, you may want to check out Amazon or eBay for that magical dog training want, and if I were you, I would go for overnight shipping. So let's talk a little bit about science and dog training without making your hair stand on the end or me putting you to sleep again. Hang in there with me because some of this science jargon is important to know when wondering why your dog does what it does, why your dog has good, or why your dog has annoying behavior. So if you don't have the perfect dog, and you can't buy a magic wand, ponder this. Here comes some science. Every time your dog initiates an activity, and successfully completes it, the behavior has been reinforced and your dog is more likely to repeat that activity in the future. The more often he has the opportunity to perform a self-satisfying specific behavior, the harder he'll try to do it in the future. Successful execution of the behavior can be rewarding in itself. This is why it's important to actively control the situation in which unwanted behavior occurs if you want the dog to stop doing it. My favorite saying, and if, you've, if you're a graduate of mine, you hear this often, my favorite saying to my grads is that being proactive produces much better results than being reactive when you're working with a dog. Another way of saying it is, reinforced behaviors equal the likelihood of the dog repeating. Even if you inadvertently reinforce behaviors you don't want, or if those behaviors are so self-reinforced by the environment, it's going to equal an increase of that behavior. So a great basic example of this is a dog that constantly sniffs the edge of the building or the pole before going to the down curb. I can tell you that checking P-mail on the way to the curb is very reinforcing to most dogs. They enjoy doing that. And I know you're going to say, oh, but Dell, come on. I give my dog food reward at the down curb. So why does he still sniff at the pole or the building line? I've been told that food reinforcement or random food reward or high amount of praise should make the behavior stronger of going to the curb. Well, you know what? I guess no one explained that theory to your dog. And I guess your dog likes the old adage of killing two birds with one stone. In other words, the dog does what works for him. So let's analyze how we reinforce positive, positive behavior in our dogs during training and, or, or problem solving. So this is a quote, and I'm sure those of you that have been reading dog books will know exactly where this quote came from. A reinforcer is anything that... Occurring in conjunction with an act tends to increase the probability that that act will will occur again. Anyone can tell me who wrote that? In the back, someone raised a hand. Yes, Karen Pryor. Don't shoot the dog. So, in other words, the desired behavior is gen. And what I want to say about this, um, in reference to that quote, is that the desired behavior is generally marked by the use of a clicker a sound, or the word yes. And the reinforcer might be food. In dog training schools, both positive and negative reinforcers are used with some programs now weighing heavily on positive reinforcers. The positive reinforcer might be the use of food, a toy, verbal with physical praise, the choice is yours for something that's positive. But it has to be something that the dog wants and the dog enjoys. Something the dog wants to work to get from you. The negative reinforcer might be a leash correction, the pressure that's exerted on the muzzle when using a halty, a firm tone of disapproval, a mild harness check. It's anything that the dog would like to avoid. When using a negative reinforcer, be careful. We all use them, but you better be careful. Because what you consider to be a mild negative reinforcer might very well be perceived as severe by your dog. So you need to be careful whenever you use them, and we use them all the time in guide dog work. So you better know your dog. Science tells us that behaviors taught and reinforced with positive reinforcers are stronger, more reliable, and predictable than behaviors taught or reinforced by the use of negative reinforcers. I'm not saying don't use negative reinforcers. So just be aware that any time you are using a negative reinforcer, you put yourself at risk for the very predictable follow fallout that punishment may produce. Negative reinforcer is punishment. That sometimes brings fear. It brings avoidance. It brings confusion. It brings re- reduced initiative. And that's just but to name a few. You also risk, when you use negative reinforcers, the spillover of your dog associating the negative reinforcers with the training environment that occurred, but more importantly, you risk that the dog is going to associate that negative reinforcer with you, the trainer. So be careful. That's what I say. (laughs) That dog says yes, be careful. Okay, so one more quote from Karen. And science further tells us that in order to maintain an already learned behavior with some degree of reliability, it is not only not necessary to reinforce it every time, it is vital that you do not reinforce it on a regular basis, but instead switch to using reinforcement only occasionally and on a random or unpredictable basis. This is in an ideal world where your dog or the animal, is performing at a high level. Not the case when you're working, training, and teaching the dog a new behavior. Just want to be clear about that. So, how does all these proven theories of science work in the real world of dog guides? Let's talk about distractions, whether they're dog, cats, birds, etc. Something in the environment that elicits an unwanted behavior response from your dog. So hopefully you've been listening. You know by now that if you only use a negative reinforcer in response to a distraction, a firm, firm tone of voice, a least correction that the intended wanted behavior of not being distracted is going to be very unpredictable. It might even be rewarding to the dog. After all, some distractions and we all know this, some corrections are theatrical more than they are a correction. You know, someone's correcting their dog, hooping and hollering at their dog, and the dog's nose is still stuck in the bush, sniffing away. So the dog's not too upset about what's going on. So when you use that type of a correction, a negative reinforcer, it doesn't make the behavior predictable. Maybe next time your dog is going to go by that dog that you corrected last time for. Or maybe not. In other words, you've now given the dog total control over the situation, and you simply react instead of being proactive in an attempt to modify or change that behavior. You've given all the power back to the dog. You do something, I react to it. I've never showed you to do anything differently. I'm just reacting. Can you use purely positive reinforcers to modify your dog's behavior in reference to distractions? Maybe you could. I think I mentioned that a a moment ago. But I don't think you have the time. I don't think you have the patience. And I know you don't have the sight. Because training by use of purely positive reinforcers initially requires controlling the situation and close observation of your dog. So the reward is delivered timely and the behavior is cemented. For example... It's nearly impossible to teach the dog to ignore the environment by marking the behavior of eye contact contact with you upon your dog seeing another dog. And you're rewarding timely. Kind of hard to do that if you don't have sight. Kind of hard to do that if you can't anticipate the dog coming up. So this plays into the old adage of don't tell the dog what not to do, but what to do. Example would be, I see the loose dog, and I ask my dog to touch. And we'll talk about that in a moment. I never say to the dog, don't look, because that's telling the dog what not to do. I'm not going to say no. I'm going to ask the dog to do something that I can reward. It's time-consuming, but it does And it's really, really helpful if you have sight. So that's the reason we have to use negativity. If I could do that in the best true sense of the world, of of the word, I would use true shaping if I had time and sight, if I had the time to do it. I would sit there and just wait. When my dog got distracted, and I would wait for that dog to look back at me, and I would click and reward. So hopefully the dog can begin to associate, leave the environment, come back to me. I'm going to reward you for that. It's a little hard for some of us to do. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't take the time to work towards a happy medium. You sometimes need to tell your dog what not to do, followed by what to do. The initial response from your dog towards a distraction, maybe it's movement, maybe it's whining, is one of the few times you are put in the position of reacting first. You have to. After all, you can't generally anticipate when you're going to come across a distraction when you're out working. However, you do know darn well when your dog whines or the pace of your dog suddenly increases that he has spotted something of great interest. I'm always a bit amazed when I watch a handler and they don't respond to the dog's initial increase in pace. The dog has just seen a distraction. The dog is giving you a really good physical cue that they are definitely interested in something else. And the handler does nothing. To me, that's kind of like seeing the embers of a fire and watching the fire until the embers develop into a full-fledged roaring fire before you decide to maybe break out the garden hose or call the fire department. So in other words, you've let this dog become more and more focused on the distraction before responding. Therefore, your chances of getting the dog back to you quickly has lessened and lessened and lessened. And as I say to my graduates, you don't need to know the reason. You don't need to know what the dog is interested in. Who cares? All you need to know is that you did not ask for that increase in pace. And you need to respond now, not tomorrow, not as the dog has increased its interest. So what do we do? We're going to talk about distractions. The first thing in changing your dog's behavior in regards to distraction, you first need to teach your dog a behavior that the dog can do following being told what not to do. In other words... Your dog has to know the answer to the problem that is being presented. And in this case, it's a distraction. You're saying to your dog, you can't go towards that distraction. But you can do this. This has to be taught when you're going to teach your dog of what they can do in regards to a distraction. It has to be taught in a zero distraction area. If you wait until your dog is in the middle of a dog distraction or a cat distraction or a person distraction or a bird distraction, and then you attempt to teach the dog your desired behavior that you would like the dog to go to, well, then good luck on that. And you let me know how that's working out for you. Because I can tell you right now, no hop-up, that's a disaster. Because you're telling your dog no. And you're telling your dog to hop up, and then you're correcting the dog with a leash. It's all negative, 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 negative. With the desired, and you know what's going to happen, it never becomes reliable. You've never fixed the problem. All you've done is gotten the dog by the distraction. That's it. You You never taught the dog to do something else in regard to the distraction. You just said let's get by this as ugly as it may be and as unsafe as it may be we're just going to get by because I want to move on I don't think that works well and I think there are lots of different things you can do to address that for example one thing you might want to do is to teach your dog to touch your hand in response to the verbal cue touch coinciding with a verbal marker of yes And then deliver the food. In a zero distraction area, the dog will learn very quickly the game, and the dog will very quickly begin to wait and watch for your next cue to touch. They want the food, they know how to get the food, you got the food, and they're just waiting for the cue. So essentially, when you're teaching the dog that, you're teaching the dog to ignore the environment. Because you have something much better to offer the dog. And the dog knows how to get that reward. So remember, you first need to get the desired response, the behavior you want. I gave the example of touch. You need to mark the behavior with a click or a verbal yes. And then you need to reward the behavior. You also need, need to begin to practice in a zero-distraction area. You then begin to practice in a low-distraction area, such as moving outside of your home, followed by areas of mild stimulation, but not key areas of distraction for your dog. Meaning, if, my, if I'm working on dog distractions, and I've taught my dog the cue of touch, and it's going really, really well... And then I move outside and that's going well. My next step is not to introduce my dog to d- to other dogs yet. I need to make sure that my dog is really really responsive and knows exactly what I want. So I'm going to go to something else that's a mild distraction. Maybe it's a playground. Maybe it's the dog food aisle in the store. Eventually you practice in areas of increased stimulation. And begin in areas of mild key distractions for your dog. As I said, this you know, I, as I told you today, I don't have any shortcuts for you. If you're trying to modify behavior, you've got to put the work in. You, you just can't get on the phone, call the trainer. If you haven't put the work in, or if the trainer arrives and makes suggestions to you, you don't practice. I got no shortcuts. You got to practice. And you got a constant proof to ensure, you got to do constant proofing to ensure that the behavior is cemented. Depending on your dog, you might need a very high value reward in order to trump your dog's self interest and self rewarding behavior. Maybe just a kibble. I mean, if we're talking a Labrador and it's not too high, maybe it's just a kibble from the food pan. If we're talking to German Shepherd, they might go, hey, that ain't cutting it. I really like what I see over there, and you don't have jack for me in that pouch. So do whatever you want, but I'm going to continue doing what I want. So sometimes you have to up that value. And you're going to get that reliability, and you're only going to get it through repetition. So we've talked about teaching the dog a cue, something the dog can do so the scenario might look like this. Your dog suddenly increases his pace in response to the distraction. You need to react now, not later. Remember the fire example I gave you. You don't need to know and wait and see what is my dog distracted by. All you need to know is my dog's distracted. It's not focused. You calmly drop the harness handle. Depending upon the dog... There may be a little bit of a more forceful leash correction. But I'm telling you again, you better know your dog before you haul off and give that leash correction if you're going to do it. Particularly if it's a new dog to you in training, and I'm talking to instructors, because you stand the chance. If you don't know that dog well, and you've now introduced that negative reinforcer, you stand the chance of not only ruining your relationship with that dog you also stand the chance that the dog may not begin to show you other behaviors because they're going to say, you know what? I don't trust you anymore. And then you put that dog in class, and that dog blows up. And you say, wow, I never saw those distractions. So if you're going to use negative, and we all use negative, you better know what you're doing, and you better know your dog. And for the, gradu- for the people in here that have guide dogs... You know your dog. You know what you need to do in face of a distraction. So you're going to calmly drop that harness handle. And then you're going to ask your dog to touch. And your dog responds. You might need to repeat the cue several times. I work with grads, and they'll say, he'll drop the handle. And they'll say, touch. Yes, they feed. Touch. Yes, they feed. And they say, OK, we're ready to go. And I'm like, "Mm, is your dog focused on you? Or is your dog still going back to the distraction? And sometimes they do, and they go back, and they go back. You've got to be patient. You've got to continue to work on that and reward appropriately and tell, and what are we trying to achieve here? We're trying to achieve getting your dog to leave the environment and your dog to come back to you. That's what we want the dog to do. There are lots of variables, as I said, in how you're going to treat that. And it's also going to depend upon your dog's self-interest. Unfortunately, again, you're put in the position of reacting and telling your dog what not to do instead of being proactive and initially telling the dog what to do. And by that I mean some people may drop the handle, no. Then they ask the dog what to do. You could drop your handle, not say anything to the dog. It's still negative, Even though you haven't given a correction, it's still a negative reinforcer because you're preventing that dog from doing what he wants to do. You're putting pressure on that leash and holding that dog back. So it's still negative, not as negative as a leash correction, but it's still negative. Or, because I'm just a crazy guy, you can forget everything I just talked about. And you can continue to tell your dog no in conjunction with a leash correction and drag your dog right by that distraction. Or you might want to stop and do obedience. That's negative too. What I can guarantee you is that those responses that you're doing are all filled with negative. And you're gonna get the predictable outcome in that you are now have unpredictability in your dog's behavior towards the distraction. Next time they might go by the dog. And you say, see, Del, you're wrong. He went by that dog. And then you go a block later, and your dog tears after that dog. Because you haven't taught your dog anything. You really haven't. You told him they can't do it. But you never told the dog what the dog can do. You've just simply said, no, you can't do that. And I'm going to hang onto the leash, and I'm going to tell you hop up. And someone says, well, Del, I am telling him what to do. I'm telling him to hop up. Yeah, but you're also popping him with the leash. It's all negative, 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 negative. Dog doesn't care. He's going to go right back, and he's going to do what dogs do, and he's going to be distracted because you've never taught the dog another behavior.
0: Next month, we will delve into more of Del Rodman's remarks at the convention because the issue of distractions and motivation is so crucial. If good handling is something you're interested in. And if you don't currently have a dog, well, that sort of thing may be of value to you down the road when you decide to get one. That's it for the Juno Report for August. Thank you for listening. I'm Nolan Crabb. We'll be back in September on the first Friday of the month here on ACB Radio. And as a podcast, if you download the podcast, we'd love it if you'd go to the iTunes place and rate us there. People can find us more easily there if you do the rating. Until next month, thanks for listening. Have a great month. And we'll be back with part two of Del Rodman's remarks.